Welcome to journeywithjesus.net, a weekly webzine for the global church. I'm Debbie Thomas. My essay this week is entitled Cruciform, and it's based upon the lectionary readings for April 10th, 2022, Passion Sunday. The longer I practice my faith, the more essential and all-encompassing Jesus' passion becomes. With each year that goes by, I feel pulled in the direction of the cruciform, the cross-shaped, the cross-centered, the cross-infused, which is to say I'm drawn to a God who suffers before he conquers, a bruised God who accompanies as well as saves. In short, I'm increasingly reliant on the painful mystery we call Good Friday. It is in dying that we will live. It is in surrendering that we might triumph. It is in the shape of a lonely, jagged cross that will find salvation. In many ways, Holy Week holds within it our entire human story, all of the hope, tragedy, love, and joy that shapes our days. It reveals to us the the horrors of injustice, but also shows us the deepest love the world has ever seen. As we move from the intimacy of the Last Supper to the agony of Gethsemane to the desolation of Golgotha, we can find traces of our own stories, stories of friendship and betrayal, fervor and futility, hope and humiliation. Of course, standing on this side of resurrection history as we do, it's easy for us to skip past the cross at times, forgetting that for our spiritual ancestors, Jesus' death held no religious meaning whatsoever, no veneer of holiness, no hint of redemption, and absolutely no connection to God. For them, the cross was a state instrument of torture and death, period. Imagine for a minute if the central symbol of our faith nowadays was an electric chair, or a lethal injection chamber, or a lynching tree. Biblical historians tell us that it was not uncommon for the road to Jerusalem to be lined with crosses in Jesus' day, each of them bearing a body. Anyone who took that road from their home to the market, or from the market to the temple, or from the temple to a friend's house, would have no choice but to encounter those grim instruments of capital punishment on a regular basis. Imagine what life was like for the people who lived in the shadow of those crosses. Imagine how their hopes would shrivel under the constant threat and terror. Because of course that was the point. The crosses were meant to intimidate. The crosses were the Roman Empire's illustrated sermons, and the message of those sermons was crystal clear. You can have your religion, you can worship whatever you want, but don't forget, even for a minute, who really holds sway over your life. Go to your temple if it suits you, call on your God if it makes you feel good, but never, ever mess with the power structures that actually control your world. Don't even think about resisting. If you do, we'll hang you up too. We know that the disciples' great hope was that Jesus would lead them in a military revolution and overthrow their Roman oppressors. Jesus was the one who was supposed to pull down the crosses, not die on them. But that is precisely the binary that Jesus challenges when he takes up his cross. And it is precisely the binary we are called to re-examine as well. In a cruciform faith, we can no longer divide human things, loss, grief, pain, and humiliation, from divine things, glory, triumph, invincibility, and power. On the cross, Jesus insists that God is in the hard things, the low things, the scandalous things, the gritty, messy, broken things. God does not hold God's self remote from the worst of his world. Immunity and invincibility are our fantasies. They have nothing to do with God. Think once again about those crosses that lined the road to Jerusalem. Think about the fundamental passivity those crosses were meant to instill in the people who gazed up at them. 
And then think about Jesus willingly taking up one of those crosses and saying, I will not stop for you. I will not choose safety at the expense of injustice and evil. I will not save my own skin while you keep killing the people I love. My uncomfortable truth is that I often live in such fear of suffering and death that I use up a huge amount of my mental, spiritual, and physical energy trying to save off both. To be fair, contemporary Western culture encourages me to do this. What would Jesus say, I wonder, to a culture that glorifies violence but cheapens death? What would he say to a global economy that rapes and pillages the planet instead of stewarding it with tenderness and wisdom? What would he say to a notion of personal liberty that encourages me to insist on my rights while ignoring my civic and spiritual responsibilities? What would he say to my own frightened heart that flees from all things cruciform, prioritizing self-protection over everything else that matters in this life? The cross is not about remaining passive and fearful. The cross is not about admitting defeat. The cross is not about opting out. The cross is about shaking things up. The cross is about rattling the system to its core. The cross is about enduring whatever might happen to us when we confront, resist, and protest the injustices we see around us. Here and now, the cross is about saying, it's not enough that my children are safe on the streets if yours are not. It's not enough that I have clean air to breathe when my neighbors two towns over do not. It's not enough that I'll have dinner to eat tonight, if you will not. It's not enough that my zip code grants me prestige and security, while yours does not. It's not enough that I feel welcomed and nourished by the church, if you do not. To live a cruciform life is to live in the center of the world's pain. Taking up the cross means recognizing Christ crucified in every suffering soul and body we encounter and pouring our energies into alleviating that pain, no matter what it costs us. It means accepting against all the lies of our culture that we will die and following up that courageous acceptance with the most important question we can ask. How shall we spend this one brief, singular, God-breathed life? Shall we hoard it in fear or give it away in hope? Shall we push suffering aside at all costs and in doing so push Jesus aside too? Or shall we live cruciform lives, accompanying the one we call Savior down the only road that actually leads to hope and healing? For those of us who've grown up in the church, the actual scandal and strangeness of Jesus' death has maybe long faded away. But the bottom line is, God died. Jesus willingly took the violence, the contempt, the apathy, and the arrogance of this world and absorbed them all into his body. He resisted the power, as terrifying as they were, and in doing so, declared solidarity for all time with those who are abandoned, colonized, oppressed, accused, imprisoned, beaten, mocked, and murdered. He took an instrument of torture and turned it into a vehicle of responsibility, hospitality, and communion for all people everywhere. He loved, and he loved, and he loved, all the way to the end. For me, the temptation to resist what is cruciform is just about constant. The world tells me all the time that I don't have to do this hard thing. I don't have to take this faith business so seriously. I don't have to engage deeply or take any real risks. I don't have to die. It's true, I don't. There is a spectator version of Christianity out there, and people do live it. But I can't pretend that it's the version Jesus calls me to. I can't fool myself that standing on the sidelines will grant me immunity or safety or meaning or joy, because it won't. On the contrary, it's death and death alone that leads to resurrection. Needless to say, none of us live or can live the cruciform life perfectly. We get tired, we get overwhelmed, we lose hope. But the passion of Jesus reminds us that our bedrock is not death, 
Our bedrock is resurrection. Christianity is not masochism. The cross is not our end goal. The cross is the instrument of solidarity and resistance that carries us from a shallow half-life to the abundant, glorious life of the children of God. So, as we enter into Holy Week, let's remember that the essential question is not how badly are we willing to suffer. The essential question is how badly, fiercely, urgently do we want to live the resurrection? For books this week, Dan reviews The Empathy Diaries, a memoir by Sherry Turkle. For over 40 years, Sherry Turkle has been the proverbial canary in the coal mine that warns of impending danger. In her new memoir, Turkle, a professor of technology and the social sciences at MIT, and the founding director of the MIT Initiative on Technology and Self, admits that she's been something of a killjoy in the American love affair with technology. In her earlier book, Alone Together, Turkle explored why we expect more from technology and less from each other. In Reclaiming Conversation, The Power of Talk in the Digital Age, she documented how we converse less with each other, even as we connect more with technology. In the Empathy Diaries, Turkle recounts her own life story to illustrate how technology changes not only what we do, but who we are, our own inner lives and our relationships with others, with a special focus on the loss of empathy. But only shared vulnerability and human empathy allow us to truly understand each other. Turkle insists that technology isn't a neutral tool. It enchants. It makes us forget what we know about life and exerts a seductive undertow on us. Our captivity to technology degrades almost all of our important human relationships, from dinner table conversations to bath time with your baby to a walk on the beach with your lover. These are just a few of our sacred human moments that are not the time to check our smartphones. Technology diminishes our capacities for self-reflection and creativity. Increased productivity from multitasking is now known to be a myth. Studies show drastic decreases in empathy among college students the last 20 years as measured by standard psychological tests. There are no simple solutions. What we should look for are new beginnings. That requires us to acknowledge the profound effects of technology on us and to admit our vulnerabilities. These are the first steps towards changing our behaviors and living more intentionally with our digital devices. Then all sorts of small steps become possible, like device-free times and places. No phone to the dinner table. In Reclaiming Conversation, Turkle suggested that we listen to the experts. If Google's former CEO, Eric Schmidt, admits that he no longer reads books on airplanes because he's so digitally connected, if the Harvard law professor Carol Steiker now prohibits all digital devices in her classes, and if Steve Jobs and Jonathan Ives, Apple's chief design officer, limited the screen time of their own children, then we can follow their own fears and reclaim a significant part of what makes us human, talking to each other. In the last pages of the Empathy Diaries, Turkle says that to fix our crisis of intimacy and privacy, of empathy and human connection, We don't need more apps. We need one another. We are the empathy app, and we have the potential to do the right thing when it counts. It's not too late to reshape the digital to serve the human. For films this week, Dan reviews Mayor Pete. I thought this was a strange film, which is unfortunate given its subject matter. The production values were very simple, essentially just non-professional film footage of the Pete Buttigieg 2016 presidential campaign, with a few interviews thrown in, along with some more personal moments with Buttigieg's husband. In addition, you don't learn anything new about Buttigieg, just not in his very readable book called Shortest Way Home, One Mayor's Challenge and a Model for America's Future. 
If you are new to the former mayor of South Bend and current Secretary of Transportation, he has a great one-liner that he used on the campaign, com campaign trail. He likes to say that, quote, I'm your only choice for a Maltese, left-handed, openly gay, unapologetically Christian, Harvard and Oxford alumnus, Navy Reserve officer from 2009 to 2017, who was deployed to Afghanistan for seven months, who also speaks seven languages. He deserves a better movie. And lastly, for poetry, Crucifixion by Anna Akhmaktova. Weep not for me, mother. In the grave I have life. The choir of angels glorified the great hour. The heavens melted in flames. He said to his father, Why hast thou forsaken me? And to his mother, Oh, weep not for me. Mary Magdalene smote her breast and wept. The disciple whom he loved turned to stone. But where the mother stood in silence, nobody even dared look. Thank you for joining us at journeywithjesus.net for April 10th, 2022. I'm Debbie Thomas.